Well, I mentioned it earlier, um, but we are uh, going through the book of Judges. Uh, I was telling uh, my cousin that this week, and he said, uh, he said, Marsh, I know you're a pastor, and my cousin's not been going to church for, I mean, not for like his whole life, but he's been going the last four or five years, and he said, Judges? I never even heard of that. And I was like, well, that's in the Old Testament, and you can look at it later. Uh, that's, that's where we've been. Um, even if you have been in the church uh, for a long time, Judges is probably a part of the scriptures you haven't looked at. And we're not trying just to be uh, weird. Um, we really think it's good for our faith. So that's where we've been. Uh, we're taking a break from that to look uh, at a passage that deals with this issue of race on Martin Luther King weekend. And um, it's not hard uh, to find a passage in the scriptures that has to deal with race. Uh, there's a ton of them. We're going to see a few of them tonight. Um, so we want to recognize this weekend, we want to celebrate uh, Martin Luther King's his life, his legacy as a church. Uh, then you've got a white guy preaching. Um, it's odd. And so the obvious question is, what qualifies me to speak on this issue of race? Uh, well, the first answer that question is um, anyone who stands on the truth of the scriptures can talk about any topic regardless of the topic as long as you stand on the scriptures. For instance, uh, if you're single uh, and you don't have children, uh, you can still teach on marriage and parenting as long as you stand on the scriptures. So I can speak on race as being part of the majority of culture for no other reason than the sufficiency of God's word. No other reason. Another reason, um, another thing I, I think that qualifies me to speak on this issue is are my limitations. Uh, I'm not coming to you as superior training. Never had a class on this subject. I'm not coming to you as someone with a wealth of experience when it comes to racial reconciliation. Um, in fact, I grew up in Florence, Kentucky. Uh, I went to public schools, and I never went to a school uh, that had more than 5% non-white. I'm coming to you in weakness uh, from living in the tension of being in my neighborhood, about four blocks this way. I'm coming to you in humility. I'm coming to you in weakness. So I'm coming to you standing on the scriptures today. I'm coming to you in weakness. And lastly, I'm coming to you because I've been asked to. Uh, multiple uh, of my non-white friends, when we talk about this issue, they say that they can wave the flag and they can use their voice until they're blue in the face, but nothing is really going to change until white leaders speak out against this racial inequality. So that's why I'm here today. I think that's what qualifies me. But if I'm really honest, uh, this is probably about as inadequate as I've ever felt standing in front of you. But this is a burden that's in my belly as your pastor. Um, I look out here, and this doesn't look like what I see the other 166 hours of my week. The zip code in which we find ourselves here, the zip code of my home, is 40508. And the racial makeup of this zip code, of where we are, is 58% white, 31% black, 5% Asian, and 3% Hispanic. You know what my dream is as your pastor? Is that this room might look more like this neighborhood. Martin Luther King, he had a dream too, didn't he? That's his speech. His most famous speech. And in it he says this. He says, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves 
and the sons of former slave owners will sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering in the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. So did I get my dream from Martin Luther King? Kind of. But where did Martin Luther King get his dream? He got his dream from the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 60, uh, we read earlier, it deals with this issue of race in a really compelling and intimate way. Uh, Jonah, who we looked at this past summer in the, in the month of July. Uh, if you, you probably know that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. You probably, you, maybe you haven't been around church your whole life. You know uh, the story of Jonah somewhat, that Jonah was called to go to this place. Uh, he was called to go to, to, to Assyria. And Assyria were, was a nation that had formerly oppressed Israel, his nation. And so when God tells him to go to Assyria, he's going to his enemies. He's going to the ones that have oppressed him. And he runs and goes the other direction. Why did he run from God's cause? And not because he just didn't want to leave home? No. It's because he hated this whole block of people. He was a racist. Then you see the life of Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. Yet every time you turn around reading the Gospels, he's offering his grace to a non-Jew. Ephesians 2. Many of, again, if you've been around the church a long time, you might know the first 10 verses of that chapter pretty well. I would say those are 10 of the verses uh, that people know best from the writings of Paul. The most famous line, it, is, it says this, it says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. See, those first 10 verses, they deal with our salvation on an individual level. But I bet you you don't know much about the last 12 verses. You know what the last 12 verses talk about? It talks about how salvation is offered to us on a, on a racial and a corporate level. It says that Jesus is himself our peace and that he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility that stands between races. So we get a lot of other places to talk about race. But this subject of race receives such little talk in our predominantly white churches in Kentucky uh, why is that? Well, a big reason for that is that uh, if you're white, you're part of the majority culture. So if you're white, you can escape this whole discussion. You can tune in. You can listen to my sermon for about the next 28 minutes. You can go read a blog. You can go listen to a podcast on race. But then you get to tune out. If you're a non-white, you don't have that luxury. Race is always in the orbit of your thought. Or at least so I'm told. That's one reason. Part of the majority culture. That's why it didn't get much talk here. Uh, another reason is just lack of exposure. Uh, maybe you never. Maybe you were like me growing up. It's not like uh, there was another side of the tracks. I mean, the other side of the tracks was like 25 miles away. <laughs> uh, it's just that there weren't many non-whites anywhere close to where I lived. And maybe that was true for you too. And, and doing a little picking around, I found out that 88% of Kentucky is white. And most of the non-whites pretty much live in Lexington and in Louisville. Are there other non-whites that live other places? But 
Most of those other places, most, most of the counties in Kentucky have less than 2% of a non-white population. So maybe the reason it doesn't get talked too much is because you're white and because you live in Kentucky. But for us, as TCPC downtown, we don't have a choice. And we don't have a choice because of our context and also because of our theological convictions. But in the end, you can make a commitment to be race conscious, you can make a commitment to live in a place with a significant non-white population, and you can still not get the scripture's message on racial diversity. So what's it gonna take? Where should we go in the scriptures to look at this? Uh, well, the passage um, for tonight, for our consideration, is in Galatians 3 into 4. Uh, we're gonna read this together. Uh, it was there towards the front, Justin alerted you to the flip-flop, page 4. Um, I bit off more than I could choose for this reading, uh, so we're not going to read this whole thing. You can, if you want, give it a little context, but I'll just be preaching verses 26 through 29, so that's what we're going to read tonight. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no female, no male, and no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All men are like grass, their glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, I, I need your help. Um, Lord, thank you for the promise that you use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And if there was ever a night, I'm always foolish. Uh, but I'm extra foolish tonight. So, Lord, I, I pray you would help me. I pray for your power, uh, Lord, that uh, salvation doesn't come through the eloquence of man's word, but through the working of your Holy Spirit. So, Spirit, we ask you um, to be at work in our hearts and change us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so from our text, they really got two points. Uh, the exclusivity of Christ, verses 26, 27, uh, and the, inclusive, or the, the, the exclusivity of the gospel and the inclusivity of the gospel. The, ex, the exclusive part is 26, 27. The inclusive part is 28, 29. So let's look at 26, 27 first. The exclusivity of the gospel. Um, you see there that there is, in verses 26, 27, there's a clear distinction between who are the children of God and who aren't. See, if you're in Christ, then you're sons of God. If you put your faith in Christ, then you have God as your father. But if you're outside of Christ because your faith is not in him, then you are not clothed with him. So this means that the gospel by its very nature is exclusive. You are either in or you are out. You might say, come on, Marsh. I mean, are we loving around here? Uh, you sound a little narrow-minded for me tonight. Um, aren't all human beings God's children? Well, think about it this way. Think about my dad. My dad uh, loves kids, not in a creepy way. Um, but he loves kids. He helps out uh, with a nursery at his church. And uh, there's not many 60-something-year-old people at my dad's church who help out in the nursery. But he does because he loves kids. He always has. Um, 
he reads, he reads weekly uh, to a, one of the elementary schools. He goes up there and reads during the week. But then there are his grandkids. He's got kids at Florence Elementary. He's got kids at Grace Fellowship Church where he goes in Northern Kentucky. But then he's got these six people with whom he shares a last name. With who he, they have 25% of his DNA. And you should see him when he's around those kids. He lights up like a Christmas tree. He'd do anything for his grandkids. So would you fault him for loving his grandkids more than the kids who aren't his grandkids? Well, you wouldn't because they're his family. But it would also be unfair to say that he doesn't care about the kids at his church and about the kids at the school he helps out at or in his community. Just because he has special affection for his grandkids. So in one sense, it is true that God is the father of all mankind. Acts 17 says that we are God's offspring, all human beings. And that's because God is all of our creator. He is our creator and he has made all human beings after his very own image. And before the fall of mankind, before the fall of mankind in the sin of Adam and Eve, we were all destined to be God's children for eternity. But we left the family. We forfeited our rights as sons and daughters of God. And we have become, according to the scriptures, sons and daughters of wrath. So there's no hope for us unless we're adopted back into the family. See, our sinful hearts would never choose to be in God's family. But the good news of the gospel is that God has chosen us and he's adopted us into his family through his son and our brother, Jesus Christ. See, friends, this is our primary identity, sons and daughters of God. That's who we are as Christians. That's why the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, starts with our Father. And it reminds us that the creator of all the universe, with whom we are made in his image, is also our Father. It's a privileged position. And there's really one major takeaway according to these four verses. And we see it at the end of verse 29. It says that we are heirs of His promise. What does that mean? Heirs of His promise. It means that you and I, as children of God, have a guaranteed inheritance. It's guaranteed. It's not conditional. It's not somehow earned, like you may, you may have heard other people's stories. Uh, I heard a story this week that, that, uh, um, of a family. Uh, the, the mother died a long time ago. The, then the father died. And so then the kids got, you know, there were, there were six kids. And two of them got cut out. And the reason the two got cut out is because they didn't follow the family rule, whatever the family rule was. Instead of being cut up into sixths, it was cut up into fourths. In other words, the inheritance was conditional. I'm not saying that was wrong or right. I'm just saying that's not the way it works in the family of God. God isn't touchy like that. God's inheritance to us is not conditional. It is unconditional. His pledge to you doesn't mean that you have an unlimited amount of things and money like what inheritance means on this side of heaven. What it means is that we have guaranteed glory. Guaranteed glory. You know, when, you're, when you are fully glorified, you have no idea how beautiful you're going to be. You have no idea how free you will really be when your sinful nature is abolished. 
You have no idea the capacities that your new body will have. You have no idea how oppressive our sinful world is until it ceases to exist and then it's replaced by a world characterized by peace, wholeness, and justice. You you have no idea how good it's going to feel when Jesus heals all your wounds. That's glory. That's what's guaranteed. Doesn't that sound delicious? That's the inheritance that awaits you. And it's all yours. Because Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was cut out of the family. And He became a child of God's wrath so that you, children of wrath, could be beloved sons and daughters of God through Christ. That's the gospel. That's how you get this guaranteed inheritance, because you're adopted into the family of God. This is your primary identity, and it changes everything. It changes the way you think about your suffering when you're in the darkness, when you have difficulty. And if this becomes real to you at all, it will also change the way you think about race. For instance, if you're a non-white and you've essentially died a death of a thousand little cuts by living in a majority white culture, then there awaits a day that you're not going to have to sift through every comment and every glance. You're going to be understood. If you're a non-white and maybe you haven't died a death of a thousand cuts, but you've died a death of a major blow, will know that Jesus is a great physician and he's going to know how to put you back together. To my white brothers and sisters, you don't have to fear being confronted for your unintentional racism because your sin doesn't jeopardize your inheritance. You're free to be confronted. You're free to repent because you're already a child of God. That's good news. And it's all good news because you've been adopted into the family. This is our primary identity. But how do we get adopted in? Well, look at verse 27. It says it's our faith. Faith is what secures our union with Christ. And then you see the word baptism. And baptism is what outwardly and visibly is an expression of our faith. And when you're in Galatians, we're we're not in Galatians preaching through it. Maybe some of you are reading through it in, in your own personal time. But the background of the book of Galatians is that Paul is facing a bunch of false teachers. And his false teachers are people who know a lot about the Old Testament because they're Jewish. And they're telling all these non-Jews, all these Gentiles, all these Greeks to get on the Jewish train, get circumcised, and obey the law. And Paul's coming along, and he's, he's telling this very same group of people who are being told to get circumcised and obey the law. He's saying, hey, these voices are not true. I know you're a non-Jew. I know you're a non-majority. I know you're less powerful. But this is a false gospel because faith alone is what adopts you into the family of God. So there's a new vertical relationship here, isn't there? This adoption by a father who created you and who's now redeemed you. But this adoption also represents some new horizontal realities for us. These new horizontal relationships. And in these, all racial, all economic, and all gender barriers are removed because the gospel is, yes, exclusive, but it's also inclusive because it includes all kinds of people. Look at verses 28 and 29. 
It says there is neither Jew nor Greek. What's that mean? It means race. There's neither slave nor free. What's that talking about? Economic. It's talking about, uh, it's talking about rich people and poor people. There's no male or female gender. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. But this list could go on, couldn't it? Now, those are three big, uh, those are three big ones for Paul and his audience. And they're big ones for us, too, when we talk about economics and race and gender. But you could also say there's neither a Republican or Democrat. There's neither blue collar or white collar. There's neither southerner or northerner. And if we were in the state of Alabama, there's no Bama or Auburn. But these other identity markers, they now have to take a back seat to being in Christ Jesus through his adoption. But it's easy to let these other identities, our, our economic identity, our gender identity, our racial identity, it's easy because they're very real and they're very important to us to make them our primary identity. But it can't be that anyway. They have to take a back seat to now being a child of God. Because you're no longer, first and foremost, a male or female, rich or poor, or black or white, or Latino or Asian or Indian. You can't define yourself that way any longer. And if you do, you're committing idolatry. See, take race, for instance. You know better, and I know better, than to call myself a racist. You know better, and I know better too, than to say that one gender is superior than the other. You know that it's. You know better than to say that one class trumps the other. To say such would be so wrong in our cultural context, and it'd be so wrong according to the Bible. So even though you won't do that, you're you're saying your creed is correct. You believe the right thing. But often our creedal Christianity doesn't match up with our functional Christianity. Our functional lives look very different, don't they? Our functional lives really do say that we prefer one race over the other. Let me give you a few instances that have happened to me uh, that, that came to my mind uh, this week. Um, uh, one was uh, that happened to me a few months ago. Uh, Jenna, has, Jenna and I have been married for, uh, for almost 14 years, and she's been my barber uh, for 14 years. And um, she fired me a few months ago. Uh, so now she has a totally empty book of business. And um, I said, well, gosh, I got to get a haircut. And, uh, you know, living downtown, I knew, I knew where there was uh, kind of a hipster place to get your haircut there on North Lime. And I was like, well, some of these people have told me it's a good place to get your haircut. So that's where I'm going to go. So I walked down there. And as I'm walking down, you know, I walked past two predominantly African-American barbershops. Never knew they were even there. Why is that? I thought about when I chose a doctor. I moved to town about 10 years ago, and um, looking at, uh, you know, our, we had our, our um, health insurance coverage, all that mumbo jumbo, and I get to the primary care physician, and um, I'm naturally gravitated towards uh, names that are familiar to me. And the ones that are unfamiliar, I'm unconsciously just crossing off. Well, there's one doctor, uh, my doctor, Dr. Raghavan, you should go see her. And she turned out to be Indian. 
And I said, I, what's wrong with me? I'm going to go to that doctor for no other reason than I crossed her off. And I wouldn't think of switching to anybody else. But why, why would I do that? It's because I'm a racist. That's in my heart. Probably the most humiliating uh, happened. Uh, I was getting out of my car. We park on the street. It's dark. I don't know what time it is, but it's dark. And uh, I saw some, when I got out of my car, I saw someone about 25 feet away out of the corner of my eye, maybe not even that far. And I scamper up to the top of my steps real fast, and I look back, and I recognize that it was an African-American man with a hood on. He didn't say anything to intimidate me. He didn't do anything. But I don't think I would have run up if that was a white guy. See, I never would have called myself a racist a few years ago. But in these very small, everyday kind of ways, I'm putting my whiteness over my status as an adopted child of God. I'm saying that race was more important to me in these instances than grace. So what are these instances for you? Are, are you willing to fight the tendency to call these similar situations something other than what they actually are? If you are willing to fight that tendency, then you're on a marvelous journey. It hurts. It's hard. But it's a great opportunity to repent and receive God's grace. So yes, embracing this inclusivity, it's going to lead you to a life of repentance, but it's also going to lead you to see the intense unity that we have in the gospel. See, if we lay aside these other identity markers and we let them take a back seat to our adoption as children of God, then we're going to see this intense unity in being in the family of God. See, imagine um, you're an orphan, you're in the United States. And there's a family in Costa Rica who adopts you. Uh, this family in Costa Rica, they've got biological children. They've got you. They've got adopted children from East Asia, from Eastern Europe, and from Africa. So it's a big, old, crazy kind of family, you know what I mean? But which child of these has an upper hand? Is it the biological? Is it you, the Westerner? Is it the adopted children from East Asia, from Eastern Europe, or from Africa? See, each of you belong to each other in such a way that your race and even your DNA is of no significance compared to the decision of your adopted parents to lay claim on you. And it's the same in the family of God. We are equal Equal in our need for adoption, equal in our inability to deserve our adoption, and equal in the fact that God offers it to us freely in Christ. So once we receive this adoption, our equality is transformed into this sweet family fellowship that only Christ can create. But this equality, it doesn't make for uniformity. It does not eliminate our racial distinctions. It does not make us colorblind. The family of God notices our differences. So when we say that we want to be equal and that our, and that our adoption of the family of God is primary of a race, it just puts our race and all of our other identity markers in their proper place. They're still there, but they no longer are barriers 
to fellowship because we're equals, brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we move forward in this whole area of race? Well, no question it's going to be messy. No question it's going to be difficult. But let's be careful not to use those as excuses to do nothing. Uh, this week, I was talking to an African-American pastor, a friend of mine. He's in our denomination. I've got a ton of respect for him. And I called him. I just described our neighborhood. I described our church. And I asked him how as I, as a white guy, can even attempt to lead our congregation, you, in this whole area. And he asked me some really good questions. He said, um, are you afraid of messing up? I said, yep. He said, are you afraid of making people mad? I said, yep. He said, great, because you're going to mess up. You will make folk mad, but you are messing up and you're making people mad by not addressing it. I said, thanks, Erwin. I feel really encouraged. Um, <laughs> then he asked me some other really good questions. He said, hey, do you, do you ever feel like your church is praying enough? I said, no. He said, do you ever feel like you pray enough? I was like, no. He said, uh, do, you, how do, you, do you ever feel like your church is doing enough outreach, enough evangelism? I said, nope. He said, do you ever feel like you're doing enough evangelism, enough outreach? I said, nope. He said, Great. The same thing applies to the issue of race. You will never feel like you nailed it, just like you never feel like you nail it in prayer and evangelism. But that doesn't mean that you don't pray and that you don't share your faith. So friends, we'll never arrive. We're always going to be falling short. We're always going to have conflicts. But the scriptures and our neighborhood will not allow us to ignore this issue. So we're going to move ahead. We're going to keep talking about it. We're going to do so with humility because we know we're sinners. But we're going to do so with great boldness because we know that we're adopted into the family of God. And that's the most powerful identity marker we've got going for us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, it's really scary. Uh, but Lord, I, I pray, um, uh, I pray that we would experience uh, growth in our own faith. Lord, that our, our witness might be more true to your gospel uh, because you do a work within us in this whole issue. Be at work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.